Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Annette, who suffered a stroke out of the blue when she was just 61. I used to say it's like having a Belisha beacon on the top of your head that's flashing on and off going stroke, stroke, stroke. And that's how it felt for a long time. Until I've got to know this new person. Because that the old person's gone. There's no point in hankering after the old person. They've gone. And so what you do is you get to know the new person and hopefully like them and take it from there. And whatever that new person can do, you make the most of it. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. And on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Annette talks to me about life after a stroke, her recovery, the challenges she faced, and how she found herself abseiling in the Lake District just months after she'd been recovering in hospital. Okay, Annette. So to start with, could you take me back to what happened in the lead up to you having a stroke? Um, Yes, the first thing was I felt off balance and I got a tremendous migraine that just, it was worse than anything I'd ever had. And I can remember on the Tuesday, going for a walk to the post box and on the way back, had to sit on a wall and I thought... If I didn't know better, I'd say I was having a heart attack. And that was on the Tuesday, and this migraine continued right through until the Saturday when I decided to have the full-blown stroke. And that was, I was sitting in a chair, my daughter just rung me, and I realised I couldn't get out of the chair. I'd got a, a plumber working upstairs on the bathroom I'd had ripped out. My kitchen was ripped out. And I realised I couldn't shout. And uh, I just rang my daughter and obviously my speech must have been slurred. And so uh, she just dialed 999, thank goodness. And so then the emergency services rang me and kept me talking until the paramedic arrived. And the rest is history, as they say. Then it was casted off in the ambulance and off to Halifax Hospital. And what did you think had happened at that point? Did you think that you'd had a stroke? No. Oh, no. Things like that don't happen to me. No, I just thought, why can't I move? And didn't come into my head at all. I just knew I couldn't move and I couldn't think why. Obviously, I wasn't thinking straight because I rang my daughter and asked her, to uh, ring my doctor, whereas normally I would have rung the doctor, although I suppose I wouldn't have been anywhere near my address book, so perhaps that was why. I don't know, but I know I didn't think, oh, I'm having a stroke. No, definitely not. And so the ambulance arrived and took you off to hospital? Yes, they did lots of checks and things. And carted me off to hospital. And all I remember about that was I was sick in the ambulance and apologising. And my daughter saying, I'm used to it, <laughs> with my granddaughter. <laughs> and uh, and the ambulance man saying, what hospital do you want to go to? And we both said, 
Barnsley, which is our local one. And he said, right, Halifax it is. <laughs> and he carted me off to Halifax. But they have an excellent stroke unit. So I think he knew what was going on. But you still didn't. I don't remember whether he'd said, I think you've had a stroke. I don't think he did. I just remember him doing things like, you know, holding finger, holding fingers in front of me and how many fingers could I see and could I touch my nose? I don't, I really don't remember a lot. I suppose that, that must be shock or something. Mm, no, yeah. didn't occur to me. Um, but I do know when I got to the hospital, my daughter, who's a very, very nice girl, she's been brung up proper, and uh, oh, I remember a lot of people around me, and then they all disappeared, and I can hear my daughter's voice saying, that is not my mother, and then everything kicked off, and I had CT scans, but I don't, I really don't remember then, I don't know whether I was unconscious or what or just because I felt so horrible that it didn't register nothing registered I don't remember any of that in fact my daughter said that when I was in the high dependency unit at one point they'd wheeled me out of the ward in front of the uh, nurse's station so they could keep an eye on me and I was there all night but I had no idea no so this was all just a bit of a blur to you? All a big blur, yeah. In lots of ways, I'm glad I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't imagine it It would have been very pleasant. Bit of a road crash thing, you know. And and so what's uh, what do you remember? The thing that sticks most in my mind was waking up. They'd moved me to another ward and there was a young lady in a raincoat sitting by the bed and I looked at her and she said you don't know who I am do you and I said no and she said I'm one of the nurses from the high dependency ward and this girl was going off duty and she'd taken the trouble to come to find where I was and just say hello Mm -hmm. and I remember I remember kindnesses more than anything just kindnesses, people treating me with dignity when I had to be taken to the toilet, which to me was just, oh dear, oh dear. So was there a moment in hospital when you thought, this is it, I've had a stroke, this is serious, or was it more of a kind of gradual realisation? I think I am by nature somebody who always think somebody's made a mistake if it's bad news oh no it won't be that so yes I understood what they were saying I knew what a stroke was because my father had a stroke I knew what a stroke was but it it was disbelief it was no it can't be this is me Uh, you know (laughs) my nickname is lucky dancer or was (laughs) Not anymore, but it was Lucky Dancer because I always landed on my feet. I'm somebody who takes calculated risks. And so, yes, I like I like to push the boundaries, but I always know what I'm doing. Bit of a control freak, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, so, 
it was just unreal. It was almost, I'll wake up from this. Yeah. And then yeah. they'll say I'm a fraud. I think that's what I expected. I think <laughs> they'll turn around and say, you've been wasting our time. But so when I did know, I didn't, I obviously didn't accept it. I just thought, oh, right, okay, have a stroke. I think I was too busy. <laughs> I think I was too busy surviving. Yeah. You're, you're literally going from hour to hour, day to day, and everything's different. You're not used to what's happening in a hospital. And then you, you'd mentioned that you had mobility issues. Yes. Could you talk through those? I couldn't move. <laughs> yes, it affected my left side, but I would say I was weak all over. So whilst I was in the hospital, if I went anywhere, it was in a wheelchair. And if I was, I had to be moved by nurses from a chair to the bed, vice versa. And then after a few weeks, two physios sort of half carried me to a set of stairs where I had to practice go, trying to go upstairs. But I always had to have somebody with me and holding on. But after a few do you know, I don't even know how long I was in there. I was in there about three weeks, I think, because I discharged myself. They were going to put me back in a, a ward, and I said, not on your Nelly. If I can't stay in this room, I'm going home. <laughs> but I remember going to the nurse's station and having to sort of slide my bottom along the rail that was on the wall with my back to the wall, and that was the only way I could get there. And I remember they told me off and they sort of took an arm each and took me back. So initially it was movement, it was speech, which is still affected. It was anything that I needed my left side for. My gross coordination was very poor. That quickly got a lot better but I still have trouble with fine coordination which is that that last sort of foot between you and a cup or you and anything my hand will shake I can't carry things like a cup of tea and when I eat as soon as the fog gets anywhere I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it now as soon as the fog gets anywhere near my face it could go up my nose, in my hair, could go anywhere. So sometimes if it's bad, then I've got to control it with my right hand. So those sorts of things, because that is still an issue. But my my walking has improved a lot, and I was very lucky that I didn't have a thing called drop foot, which is very common with stroke, which is what it says on the tin. It's your foot just drops, so you tend to, it'll drag on the floor or you trip. But I do, I do walk like a drunk. <laughs> that's probably because I am. <laughs> no, that's, that's something I did stop. I stopped drinking. <laughs> but yes, I don't walk as drunkenly as I did, and I use a, I use a stick, but not always, because fatigue has an awful lot to do with it. So if I'm fatigued, then 
uh, I definitely work like a drunk. If I'm not tired, then I can walk a lot straighter. I won't say straight, but um, one of the main things I found when I first had a stroke is you can't walk and talk. So multiple activities were out of the question. So if somebody came and said, look, let's have a little walk up the lane and they'd hang on to our, well, I'd hang on to their arm, but I couldn't talk. I couldn't look around. I still, I still can't. If I'm walking and I hear a noise behind me, I have to stop, get, get my balance right, turn around, and then the juggernaut hits me by that time. So... Mm. Things like that. And I think, again, that's that's common. Yeah, it's like your brain has to fully focus on one thing at a time. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes. And also both, with, I would say, with speech and with movement, certainly far worse at the beginning, it is a case of when we speak, we just speak automatically. When you've had a stroke like mine or my stroke, I don't. It's a mental process. And I'm aware that my tongue, I always say it's, it's like talking with a mouthful of screwed up newspaper because your tongue feels far too big for your mouth. And because it's a muscle, I presume, <laughs> I've come to this theory on my own, um, but because it's a muscle that it's affected like the muscles in my arm, my leg are. Mm. And so it doesn't move. And I can't sneeze. <laughs> if I sneeze, I bite my tongue all the way around. So, so you I have s- to be really careful yeah. when you sneeze. If I sneeze, <laughs> well, in company, I don't sneeze. If I sneeze, I've got to sneeze with my mouth open. Or I would bite all the way around my tongue. Because it doesn't get out of the way. So is it something where you, do you still think of words in the same way as you did before, but because of the way the muscles work in your mouth and your throat, it's more difficult to get them out? I have what's called dysarthria. That's the main issue, which is difficult difficulty forming words. Aphasia is difficulty finding words. And I've got a bit of both. I'd say that I'm sort of 70% dysarthria and 30% aphasia. Mm. And uh, I'm involved with research into dysarthria. I speak in a far more deliberate way now than I used to. I appreciate that now I do sound like me to other people. That's what they tell me anyway. But I'm not as quick thinking. I was always known as somebody who was very witty. And uh, because of all this, you know, I was so quick with my answers. But now that has probably because I come out with the wrong word. So it's not witty at all. So I do struggle now finding words and I will say, I said, you had to say yesterday, oh, the, I can't say it now. I was trying to say drill bit. I said brilled it. So that's quite common. Um, 
Whereas today I'd struggle to say, brilled it. (laughs) And was that something, was that the kind of thing that your family and friends would have noticed just after you'd had the stroke? Yes, they would have done. Because then every time I saw somebody, they would say, your speech is so much better. Um, My sister used to say, I always sounded as though I'd got a dry mouth. And I would say I sounded drunk. And I think a lot of people would say that. But it's seven years since my stroke now. So I've had seven years of practice. But I don't actually like talking as much as I used to. So when somebody says, oh, let's go out for a coffee, I look forward to the coffee more than the conversation. And that's quite different to how you were before. Oh, very. Yes, yes. Yes, because I feel a lot more vulnerable. And I used to feel very conspicuous because I knew that for a start... (laughs) A silly thing, I can remember somebody once inviting me to go to the theatre, not too long after the stroke. And I declined because I knew the pubs would be open and that me walking to the theatre, people might think I'd been drinking first. Hmm. Now, I just think that's their problem. (laughs) But then I didn't. I was very aware that I didn't fit the norm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I used to say it's like having a Belisha beacon on the top of your head that's flashing on and off going stroke, stroke, stroke. And that's how it felt for a long time until I've got to know this new person because that the old person's gone. There's no point in hankering after the old person. They've gone. And so what you do is you get to know the new person and hopefully like them, and take it from there. And whatever that new person can do, you make the most of it. And it's a new version of you. It's a new version. Yes, it is. I now think it's a new version of me. Whereas initially, it was somebody had, well, initially, it was very much, I died and been reincarnated as this strange being that didn't Mm. work like I used to work. And it takes, like any bereavement, you don't get over it in a fortnight. It can take years to accept that that person is gone, but that there is another person. It's not just that you've gone. You've been replaced by somebody else with different skills and different thoughts and different ways of approaching things. Do you think after the stroke you did you spend time trying to get back to the old person? Oh yes oh yes when I look back at the things I did then like abseiling you know not really the best thing for somebody who's had a stroke to do But I went to this amazing place I found called Calvert Trust in the Lake District. And uh, they did these sort of adventure holidays, people with disabilities, but they were totally kitted out for people with disabilities. Mm. And I went there and I did that as a fundraiser for the stroke group that I went to and also for Stroke Association. 
and British Heart Foundation, of course. Um, but now, I'd, I think, <laughs> I don't I don't think I'd like, I'm seven years older, but I don't think I'd like to go abseiling. And I hated every minute of it. <laughs> uh, it's something I'd always wanted to do. So I thought, right, I'm going to do it because I can do it now and I'll be very assisted, no risks. Yeah. And I hated it. <laughs> of all the activities, hated it. How did it work? So what were you abseiling from? <laughs> Very little, really. We were supposed <laughs> to be abseiling outside somewhere and it rained. So instead we went, I'm ashamed to say this, we went into the gymnasium, which of course is sort of a double height building. Mm. And they'd got doors up near the roof. So you went outside around the back of the building and you abseiled into the building from roof height. Mm-hmm. So it was only, I'm not very good at calculating, so it's so two storeys high, two houses high, four storeys. And I can remember grabbing hold of the coat of the instructor and I said, <laughs> you're coming with me. And he said, no, I'm not. <laughs> you're going on your own. I said, look, if I die, you die. <laughs> and this poor chap is trying to wrench me off his jacket (laughs) (laughs) I think he was very close to pushing me and I'd gone with a friend an able-bodied friend and she'd gone down she's shouting encouragement from down below and I'm shouting expletives from up above (laughs) and uh, I did eventually do it but never ever ever again I'd I'd rather 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 face a bow constrictor than abseil. I hated it. And how long after having the stroke was it that you did that? Not long enough. Um, it wasn't that long. Six months. Wow. I think as well, I was I was just so... I can remember going... I was going on holiday with the same friend. It might have even been that holiday. And I said, oh... Why don't we call the council officers and I'll get a blue badge? We can park on double yellows. And and I went into the council officers and she said, oh, no, we don't issue you them today, but we'll take your application. And when I finally got my blue badge a few weeks later, and it was for years, and I thought, well, I'm only going to need this for a few weeks. Why have they given it me for two years? And I think that was the first time the penny dropped that people thought this isn't just going to go away. This is going Mm -hmm. to have lasting effects. But I don't know why I didn't realise it, but I didn't. I just thought, oh, I'll be all right in a few weeks. In fact, I can remember thinking the consultant, when he discharged me, said, it's a marathon, not a sprint, which, of course, I understood what that meant. It meant it's going to be four weeks as opposed to two. <laughs> and so seven years later, when, but I like I like the life I've got now. And mm. there, there, it's not all bad news. It slowed me down. I appreciate people. I think I've got, I've got time to actually care about people and time to appreciate what I can do. 
let alone what other people can do and do do. Yeah, I still get frustrated, but not badly. Because I now, I have no expectations now. In the beginning, you reach out for your cup of tea and you expect to be able to pick it up. Now, I'd be amazed if I could pick it up. And that's a big difference. It's made me realise as well how much I talk with my hands. When you were discharged from hospital, did anybody ever um, explicitly say to you, this is how long things might take to get better? Or did they ever say, you know, this is it, you're you're going to be walking um, with weakness for the rest of your life? Or, or how did that work? No. No, it was all done. It was sort of all on that day. So it was what I could do on that day. And we would work on various things like standing up, getting out of chairs, walking a few steps, making a cup of tea. No, uh, because I think I, I'm, I must have asked somebody, um, how long, you know, how long will I be like this? And the answer will have been, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. I can't remember a conversation, but I know it came up and it was everybody's different. And that's what I would say to people who have a stroke. Everybody's different. So you work it how it works for you. And was there anything throughout the sort of recovery process? You know, it's been seven years now since you had the stroke. Is there anything in particular that really helped you get through it? Uh, people. Um, and I joined a stroke group, which I'm not one to join things like that. And the occupational therapist recommended it. And I reluctantly went along. And had it not sadly been disbanded just before lockdown, I'd still be going once a month. Because to have people around you, who by varying degrees have the same symptoms, the same understanding, just that. Mm. Under- it's like if you talk to a man about having a baby with the best will in the world, he cannot know what being pregnant is like. Mm. And to go to the stroke group, even though Everybody was different from, you know, mildly affected to extremely seriously affected. You didn't have to explain to anybody what it was like yeah. uh, because they all knew. But you try explaining to somebody who hasn't had a stroke, all you can say is, thank goodness you haven't had one. And that was a big turning point for me was the day when... Uh, I was talking to somebody new and they asked who I was the carer for. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not the carer. I'm the person who's had the stroke. And they thought I hadn't had a stroke. I thought, how amazing. But the more you improve physically, the more difficult it can become psychologically because it's things like, the fatigue or 
this I've discovered this thing called sensory overload, which has a huge impact. And that's again is quite common, I think. It's it's as though it's like, you know, if you're in a room full of people and they're all talking, you can't switch off and concentrate on the one you're listening to. So if you're at a party and there was music playing and people talking, your brain, instead of being able to chop it off, which is what it would do normally, it doesn't, it just bombards you with all of it. And initially I found going shopping really, really difficult because of all the things on the shelves, too much information. So it's about processing information, but that's something that's not physical. So people don't know you're having that difficulty. So when you go into a shop and and don't want to be there, they can't see why. Because I think, well, you know, all right, we'll sit you down in a chair if you're tired. But it's Mm. not about that. It's about the amount of information. Yeah. And I think that is one of the main things, certainly initially, with stroke especially when you have quite a few people who come to see you and they're all you know fussing around you uh it's the worst thing they can do because you can't process the information if that makes sense yeah absolutely and it's something that is very difficult to explain to other people i imagine it's it's a hidden disability yes I think the only thing you can do is turn it in. It's like with my speech. If I say to people, it's like talking with a mouthful of screwed up newspaper, they can imagine what that's like. Yes. So they have some understanding. So I think that that is where I'm either, I'm the strokey, aren't I? Not the stroker. Well, whatever I am. Um <laughs> That the person who's had the stroke can help other people because the people around you are carrying, trying to carry on their lives as normal. And yet they've been landed with this individual who suddenly does strange things and certainly doesn't do things like they used to do them. Um, because you're not just a different person to yourself, you're a different person to your to friends them. and family as well. And it must be so difficult, especially if you if you get awkward. I found uh, tolerance a big problem. I became very intolerant. And I was aware that people were trying to do the best for me. But I just... I'm not frightened of talking, obviously, but people who want to finish a sentence for you and they have no idea of the effort required for you to go back and say, no, that's not what I mean. What I mean Mm. is, and actually, all you want to do is punch them. (laughs) But thankfully, I seem a bit more tolerant now. You didn't punch anybody? (laughs) I couldn't. (laughs) I would have done it if I could. No, I didn't. didn't That's not fair. (laughs) I know. But you can excuse an awful lot. You get away with an awful lot. Oh, and the other thing is, is people who want to help you all the time. I'll do that for you. Let me do that. I'll do that. And what I've had to tell myself is... 
unless somebody is doing something out of malice, you you just smile and say, no, it's okay, or yes, please, because they're, they're not doing it out of spite. They're trying yeah. to do their best for you. And it, sometimes it can be a bit thoughtless, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, does it take sugar? Sometimes people need those things to do, don't they? Because Yes, yeah. But it can also, be awkward. It can be awkward. I mean, my daughter obviously knows me very well, but sometimes she will say to me, do you want me to do that, Mum? But now it's more, I will ask her to do things for me. Mm. that's something that's changed I've never asked anybody to do anything whereas now I might say would you mind chopping that up unless you want fingers in it so yes it's I think as well as the people around you learning to be tolerant they also need to understand how frustrating it is for the person who's had the stroke they are now in a position where they need the assistance yeah because for you it's changed overnight you've gone from being a capable person who you told me once that you rode across France on a motorbike (laughs) (laughs) and you've gone from being that person to somebody who might need a handrail yes yeah and I that now that is one of the things I do miss I would love to ride a push bike but because my balance is severely affected but again I've learned with that I can now <laughs> hope my daughter never listens to this um <laughs> I can climb up a small step ladder if it's against the side of it is against a wall and I can hold on to a door frame as well as a step ladder so I'm making myself more, but I can't. I feel can't, like we can't. should put some sort of content warning over that, <laughs> telling people, but please like, don't try this at home. Yes, but I, I look at people now who run upstairs or run downstairs and think, how do you do that? Mm. Whereas initially, mm. of course, I would be thinking, I want to do that. Why can't I do that? Now yeah. I'm just amazed because I do not know how you do that. Because I, all I know is I see a flight of stairs and unless there's handrail, he can forget it. I could have a go, but the chances are I'd either end up crawling up on my hands and knees, I could do that, or falling down. Mm. And it's a bit of a risk. That's a risk I wouldn't take. Mm. Mm. And so now it's it's seven years on from the stroke. Tell me about what life is like for you now. Well, obviously, we're in lockdown. Yeah, so not the most exciting. (laughs) It's not exciting, but it really, lockdown is an extension of how I live anyway, apart from going out for coffees, which I really do miss. Life now is so much better because I've accepted the stroke and I, I don't hanker after what I've lost I look at what I can do and I make the most of that and the major change I think that has had an impact is where I now have lowered my expectations of myself so instead of getting tired and thinking why am I tired 
you know, work through this. I think, right, I'm tired. It's time to sit down, have a cup of tea. And chances are an hour later, I can do another hour at whatever it was I was doing. Whereas at one time, I used to try and find my way through it. And I think accepting, don't give in to limitations, but accept they are there and that you can help yourself by actually sitting down, having a rest and starting again. And I pace things now, whereas I was always a whirlwind. I was always late for things because I could always think of something else that I could shove in that five minutes. <laughs> always. Whereas I'm not like that now. I like to be early. And life is is slower. It's more structured. I think I feel more in control of my life, really. And the physical aspects and now nothing surprises me anymore. I know there's a certain way to put my socks on. I know there's a certain way to have a shower. I I can look at a situation and say, I know I would have to lean on something or I know I would have to sit down to do that. Whereas initially, you don't know. Until you sit down and fall off the chair, you don't realise. And it's that's what's so dreadful about it at the beginning. But as time goes on, you just accept the way you are and live your life within what limitations you have. Mm. Um, would you have any advice for somebody who's maybe just had a stroke or is in going through that recovery process? Concentrate on today. Think about getting through today. And there'll come a time and we're all different, there'll come a time when you actually can plan ahead and you can think, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do that. There'll also come a time where you do things physically so automatically, a bit like driving. When you're driving, you don't you don't think, oh, I'll now put my foot on the clutch, I'll now, you know, I'll now do this, I'll now do that. You just do it. And there'll come a time when the things that you can do become automatic and you don't expect to do them any other way. And also, if you can rejoice in the tiny things, you know, acknowledge that I remember the, f- the first time I took the top off the toothpaste without having to wedge the toothpaste under my arm and screw with my right hand. And I, I put it down, I thought, I held that in my left hand and unscrewed with my right. And it's acknowledging those things and those are huge achievements. But if you can't do it the day after, the chances are it's just you're tired. Give it another mm. day, have a rest, give it another day and have another go. And you'll get there. And there's no point in grieving once the grieving period's over. So spend your time and grieve for the person you've lost. But then rejoice in the person that you've become. I think that's a really lovely note to end it on. Thank you so much, Annette, for sharing all of that with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Strokes cause around 36,000 deaths a year in the UK alone and are the single biggest cause of severe disability. 
But the BHF is funding vital research into stroke. Currently, we fund £22 million of research to find new treatments and improve the lives of people affected by stroke. Annette herself has taken part in stroke research, which she says helped to give her a sense of purpose when she was recovering. She became a research advisor to Claire Mitchell, who was working on a PhD looking into dysarthria following a stroke. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can call the BHF's Heart Helpline between 9 and 5 on Mondays to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. Thank you for listening and join us next time for more on the ticker tapes. <laughs>